Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Today's episode is part two of our special series, Reading Revolution, where we read and discuss work written by or that inspired leftists of color about Mao's The Little Red Book. Just to remind everyone, you can find a full copy of the book for free on our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also visit our Patreon to make a donation for a dollar or more per month to help us keep all of our content 100% free. Also, be sure to check us out on social media by searching for Left POC and to rate and review us on iTunes. Now to continue where I left off in part one about the life and work of Mao Zedong. The Communist Party of China was founded in 1921 by two of Mao's mentors and professors. Mao, who by then had been organizing with leftist students and professors for years, began to spread communist ideology through youth groups, a bookstore he founded in Hunan for the study and proliferation of radical thought, and an area-wide literacy program. Mao, along with the Communist Party of China, continued to build alliances with pre-existing political groups and supported labor strikes as well as peasant movements, which made him and fellow party members susceptible to local surveillance by government authorities. In 1927, tensions between communists, nationalists, and other local parties culminated in a civil war that led to the deaths of an estimated 25,000 communists. During the war, the party split into several smaller factions that spread across different parts of the country, but the war continued for many more years. To make matters worse, in the 1930s, Japan invaded China. Amid this long-term struggle, Mao, who had served as a party and military leader during the war, sought to strengthen ties with the Soviet Union, despite having always maintained a sort of communism that was independent from the Soviet model. Finally, in the early 1940s, the now well-established Communist Red Army was able to beat back tens of thousands of Japanese troops. The eventual coherency of the army to accomplish this provided some of the context for Mao's writings on armed struggle and anti-imperialism, which he continued throughout the wars. I'll keep going with more on Mao's life during part three of our discussion, but for now, on to part two of our conversation about the Little Red Book. Okay, so now on to part two of Mao's Little Red Book, aka quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. Um, I just want to say one quick thing. It was interesting continuing on to the second part because I feel like I went through the second part so much faster than I went through the first part. And maybe it's because some of the things about it were familiar and like, you know, to get into the rhythm of reading quotations as opposed to in the beginning where I was kind of like, I'm reading quotations. This is weird, right? Um, But Mm. I don't know. Like I, in this one, in this section, I mean, he does a lot of discussing um, or the way it's broken down, at least the discussion is primarily around a lot of like internal sort of um, like mental, internal mental battles that people have when they're trying to go about implementing an equitable system and communism in particular. But I also, I don't know, this is the impression that I got, but it felt like the first half was a lot about 
influencing others, changing the society, trying to like uproot these problems and instilling certain values in people who should lead, et cetera. And in this part, it felt more like the the war that's going on inside you, which I, I found kind of interesting, kind of turn it into this question of interiority and thought for the second half. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I also kind of, I think, saw had the similar experience of going through it a bit more quickly on the second half in that both uh, I was more familiar with just kind of the formatting and then also as well as uh, there's a lot of reiterations and in kind of, uh, kind of, I guess, different takes or different angles at approaching similar issues. And so uh, I think part of it is, you know, different things uh, kind of resound with different people. And so sometimes pre presenting the similar ideas in slightly different variations can uh, be really helpful for people to pick up on. So I think there was some of that going on. Um, I, I guess I didn't quite, uh, pick up on, on what you noticed about the, the interior thing, but I, I did notice, uh, for me, what I picked up on was some of the, uh, I guess it was answering some of the questions that I have uh, mm. as far as, uh, like what's next. Cause I guess there's also kind of, there's some timing going on, as you mentioned at the, in the first part of this, that the writing uh, ranges, I think uh, some of the, the writings, I think in this particular section that we were reading is speaking to uh, the transformative phase of essentially there was the recognition of the problem or the issue that was going on that they had to confront. And then kind of a programmatic nature of uh, like, here's what we need to do about it. And this is uh, the strategy that we're, we're going to kind of implement. And then, uh, there's also some quotations that come sort of after the the violent part and in the administrative part. And so uh, I think for me, the quotes that stuck out in this section were more the ones that were uh, kind of uh, prescriptive uh, in general. But uh, upon reflection on your take, I do see uh, some of what you're talking about with the the internal conflict. And uh, I think that reflects both of like internal within the nation state of China and then also internally on the individual level. And I think uh, Mao in this text does a lot of uh, the relation between those two and the, the more that we see them as one and the same, the, uh, that that's kind of an underlying theme of a lot of the writing I, is what I've picked up on. It's also interesting to like kind of reflecting on Mao's upbringing, because when I was reading about him to prepare to write the introductions for these sections, I mean, the man did a lot. <laughs> he did a lot. Right. He went through a lot. And I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, it's always it always feels that way. Whenever I read about people who were, you know, revolutionaries or whatever, and many of the people that we featured or their work that we featured um, in this on, on our podcast, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like I, I look at their lives and I'm like, wow, my Wikipedia entry would be real short. <laughs> it would be like, she grew up in this place. She went to college here. She went to university here. She studied this and then she did this. That's it. The end, you know, and then she died. Like it's, it's fascinating to me how much these people managed to pack in such a short period of their lives. And I think part of it 
is the simple fact that like they're living in a time before a lot of the technology that we have in many cases, um, you know, people are growing up poor and struggling and have these adversities that they're dealing with that not to say that we don't have nowadays, of course, not, not at all, but I think those moments occurring so early um, in time prior to a lot of the changes that we've seen in sort of what I would call the new industrial revolution in a lot of ways with tech, it really make it like forces you to be active. You know what I mean? You can't just tweet something or you can't just, you know, oh, okay, you wrote a blog entry. Like you have to get out in the streets. You have to engage with people more directly on a regular basis. There's no cell phone. So you can't just like call somebody up and do something. Like I think there's, there's a degree to which, and I don't want to like fetishize the past in that way, but I think that there's a degree to which the lack of technological advancement in some ways forced people to do more. Um, because I think even now, if we look at the people who are like doing a lot or whatever, like if we were to take, you know, I'm not sure, like maybe someone like Greta Thunberg or whatever, let's just say, I mean, she might, she might be the worst <laughs> example, but she's someone who I think comes, she's someone clearly who comes from the West. She's someone who has all the, you know, trappings of a typical Western person in, who's like middle to upper class, who's not deprived in any way, who's doing something good on its face in terms of like trying to influence um, political leaders and things like that, but who was largely helped by way of technology. You know what I mean? Like her popularity grew because of the internet. So people saw what she was doing. People were tweeting about it. People were reporting on it, et cetera. I think someone like her prior to the internet and largely many, I think I could argue that many, in many cases for people now without those, without that assistance, if you will, to grow their popularity, I think movements and movement leaders would look very different. And I think this is why also a lot of the movements that are happening on the ground get missed by the press or get missed by um, just everyday people because they're not necessarily legible and showing up on the internet, right? Like there are things that are happening in people's neighborhoods among people who may not have the same degree of access that someone like Greta has, you know? And so I think that's one of the things that when I'm reading about people like this um, in the past and the people that we've covered on a lot of, in a lot of the episodes of Left POC, it stands out to me that many of them have very rich lives and I think you see what what you see in a lot of Mao's writing is that it reflects that aspect of his life or those many aspects of his life because he had like a bajillion different jobs. He worked at several universities and you know had multiple colleagues and comrades from all sets of you know like political backgrounds. And then just the fact that he read so much, which I thought was interesting, which is another thing I think that's very commonly held between people who become these like amazing figures in history, right? If you look at their backgrounds in so many cases, they're people who read a lot or who even if they couldn't read, like had so many different influences in their life. And I think that that, I don't know, it's inspiring in a lot of ways because it just reminds me of the importance of really understanding what other people are thinking and talking about politically. because sometimes we can get kind of stuck in one place or we're reading the same type of materials or we're reading the same from the same person. Um, and I think it's really cool to kind of see how diverse his background was in terms of education and then that coming through very clearly in a lot of his writings. 
I think those are all excellent points, and I, I agree with you that uh, the the bit of uh, that I did about looking into Mao's background, and then I see that reflected as well in the text in a constant reiteration of the importance of essentially being of the people and that leaders should be of the people and that uh, it's important to maintain a close connection with the the contradictions that matter to the people in uh, at in large and that while there's also a recognition that there's some weaknesses uh, of the masses so long as they're not <clears throat> excuse me employing a marxist leninist kind of line or uh, dialectical uh, analysis but uh, essentially that when we do engage in that that the masses uh, in general and then even when beforehand are able to bring forth the the issues that that need to be focused on by the party in this case uh, at large it, by in the sense that <clears throat> they uh, they're let the party is led by the people and the people's uh what the people need is reflective of marxist leninist line which is uh a more like I, what i saw was a lot of frarian uh what i refer to i guess as as frarian kind of thinking which is that the it's uh about that it's about a realization of the making or excuse me it's about making the realization that we can change our material conditions and that it's about engaging in that process and i saw that uh, repeated several times in several ways throughout uh, the second half and that that really kind of stuck out to me and you mentioned greta thunberg and kind of how the internet plays a role in the mass communication and in how it's kind of changed organizing one of the things that leapt to my mind was angela davis which w uh, was able to kind of spark uh, international support and became kind of a figurehead not just uh, within the united states but uh, also internationally as reflective of uh, unification and struggle against oppressors and uh, i think of kind of how today with greta thunberg versus as i'm sure many some people are familiar with there's uh, helena gualinga uh, i'm I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but uh, she is an Amazonian that's essentially doing some, uh, putting out the same message that Greta Thunberg is, but uh, for a variety of reasons, doesn't get the kind of uh, attention that we see uh, Greta Thunberg get as well. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned in that as well, but I'll pass it off there. Yeah, there's definitely a matter of, again, like I was saying, you know, access, right? Like who has access and why? Um, that's racial, that's based on economic background, that's based on what country you're from, right? Um, I mean, we could even argue that there are like how many Black children in Flint, including uh, Mari, I can't remember her last name right now, but, um, you know, kids who were very active in, in questions of environmental justice who just get ignored because they're not the right the quote unquote right face for an issue. Um, but I think that, again, this, this once more goes into like what, like people are thinking about what will go viral. And I think that um, having a sort of movement message that's dominated by that, unfortunately, also comes at a cost. Um, and that cost is often, I think that what's at stake, like the people who are suffering the most are often the ones who get ignored in this process and then have to rely on quote unquote spokespeople, even if their intentions are good, um, 
to to kind of um, help elevate the issues the, the issues plural that they're facing. Um, and that can again be to the detriment of a movement because you're not hearing directly from the people, which is something that Mal talks about constantly, like the need to be closely in touch with the people, hearing from the people. Um, and again, this is not a, a knock on Greta because, like you know, Greta's doing oh, what no. Greta wants to do, but I, it's more a knock on the way these sorts of um, movements and discussions change by virtue of what's considered uh, palatable and to which audiences, right? Um, and what's considered palatable is heavily shaped by these questions that we raised a little bit, a little bit ago about like, you know, who has access to us privilege, et cetera, and why. Um, but going back to what you had mentioned just on, you know, like, again, being in touch with the people, being close to the people and being responsible to the people. Um, this question of accountability comes up a lot throughout this section and um, looking on page, let me just get the exact page number here, 173, there's a quotation in the middle of the, the page where he says, quote, our duty is to hold ourselves responsible to the people. Every word, every act, and every policy must conform to the people's interests. And if mistakes occur, they must be corrected. That is what is being responsible to the people means. And I think that in this moment, you know, it reminds me so much of a lot of the questions around electability and like who's who should be president and why, or like which representatives we can trust and why. Um, this question of accountability comes up all the time. And unfortunately, there's only so much that I think people can do to hold an elected official accountable or a leader accountable. Um, most of it in the US case has to do with just elect like electing that person, right? So you can withhold your vote or you can protest or whatever, um, but they're not necessarily obligated to do anything. And I think that what's great about his, these comments throughout this section and the quotation that I just read is that part of this process, being a good leader, being and, and also I think being a movement as a whole, because you can kind of extrapolate out and apply this not only to individual leaders, but to larger movements, part of that process, an essential part of that process means never forgetting what your purpose is and never forgetting what you, why you decided to go into this in the first place. It should have always been for the people. Um, and, and that's who you owe, that's who, who you owe the work and responsibility. And I think that sometimes that part gets lost or not sometimes often <laughs> um, with movements because then the movements or the leaders themselves are more focused on, um, you know, their own personal enrichment and not necessarily the needs of the people that they are meant to represent. I also think that this throughout, again, this is why I was talking a bit about like introspection and things like that. A lot of it being internal is because he has all of these quotations throughout this section about like checking in with yourself, right? So not just checking in with the people, but then checking in with yourself and making sure that those two things align. Like if there's, if there's not an alignment between what the people are fighting for, what they want, and what they've demanded from you, and what you're doing. If you're making errors in that process, you either need to step down or you need to like fix, you know, preferably fix what you're doing, get back in touch with the people who put you in power, um, and understand their needs in a, in a closer way. And I think that that is, you know, like something I really appreciate. And I, once again, I, I think what's fascinating about this is. I think sometimes this this kind of language once again kind of goes under the radar when it comes to reading leftist texts because there's often once as, as I mentioned in the last episode there's often the stereotype about 
socialist or communist movements being very top-down and very centralized, but in a way that doesn't reflect necessarily the needs of the people. And again, this stereotype is, you know, the kind of Western capitalist-driven stereotype. Um, but there's always this, this idea of these movements being draconian. And so it's cool to kind of look at the underside of that and say, wait a second, like, but these leaders were talking about collective power and the response, they're like what they owed to the people. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's at least in the fundamental texts, they're saying they're, I think they're laying out a kind of groundwork and framework that's very positive. That's very positive for all movements, not just what we would consider, you know, like movements on the left, but any sorts of social movements, the need to really make sure that you're being a representative and you're not just thinking about yourself. Yeah, I think that's a key point that I also picked up on throughout the text. And quickly, <clears throat> on a historical note, I think uh, it, from my personal experience, Mao definitely uh, was served in injustice uh, as far as his introduction into my education that I came upon him so late and that uh, the little bit I had heard about him was so, uh, I don't like poisoned by Western capitalist uh, imperialist kind of propaganda that uh, it took so long to really give it an honest engagement really uh, is just an injustice in general. And uh, like there's whatever people have various opinions on uh, a lot of the authors that, that we're reading or people that we're engaging with. And uh, I just know that there's been historically some really horrific people that I had to learn a lot about and very little of it was about the horrific part of the stuff that they did. There's plenty of good informational stuff within even just this short uh, excerpts of uh, quotations that this sh I shouldn't have, it shouldn't have taken so long for my Westernized education to uh, kind of expose me to this. And so I think that there's some intentionality there that speaks to a, a, a larger problem as well. But Oh yeah, uh, go ahead. <laughs> definitely. No, no, I was just going <laughs> to like interject and say, you know, um, we talked about this briefly last night, but I mentioned that, you know, I found a stat that said in a poll that was taken of, you know, American high school students or something, or college students, I believe only um, somewhere around, I'm sorry, somewhere around like 45% or so had never heard of Mel, had never read any of his stuff. I had heard of him, um, but mainly through like iconography, you know, like I'd seen pictures mm -hmm. of him. I knew like, okay, he was the leader of China at one point in terms of like major social revolution, but I didn't know anything about his teachings or you know, I didn't know anything about the Little Red Book. So there were certain things that were missing from that knowledge, but I did know at least who he was. It's nuts to me that as late as 2016, there are that many students who don't know who he is. Like, it's really just, and this is not a judgment on those students, but instead a very, I think mm -hmm. it's a serious indictment of our education system. And once again, the ways that we're deprived in the United States of learning about these leaders and also just in general learning about freaking communism at all like we don't learn anything i mean it's as if it's it's a dirty word it's still you know i still think that it's overlooked and you know we didn't read in my case at least i didn't read anything about marx until i was in college and then mainly grad school right like that is nuts to me because i think there are certain texts that you can read of marx or at least excerpts that would make sense to a high school student you know um and if not marx plenty of other writers who maybe we're not quite as as theoretically dense as some of his work is we could have read and and even something like the little red book like i don't know print out a couple pages of that and have students reflect on it and what it means and and ignore 
I think the side, the sort of polemic around communism itself uh, that is often raised in the United States because it's used as a boogeyman as a foil to quote unquote, you know, the, the positive side of Western capitalism, which I don't think there is one. Um, but, you know, like we, it wouldn't hurt to read these things just as from a philosophical standpoint, you know, and we don't. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's uh, like you said, uh, a, quite the indictment of the system in general. And I think the weakness of uh, capitalism and its inability to confront alternative uh, kind of conceptions of what our world could be. And so uh, I I think one of the things that Mal also touches on is just kind of the the strength of the, the, the ideas behind Marxist-Leninist thought versus the weakness of the imperialism and uh, also the capitalism that's derived out of it and that uh, there that it's dying and that it's trying to save itself uh, from uh, going to essentially the dustbin of history. Whereas uh, socialism has a, is, is growing and has a, a life in front of it. And uh, I think that there's some, I think that the failure of capitalists and imperialist educations to be able to confront the, that, alternative narrative is emblematic and uh, also shows that weakness. Another point that you raised that I thought was important, and I had a a slightly different quote uh, on page 170 that I think also touched on it, was uh, where he says, our point of departure is to serve the people wholeheartedly and never for a moment divorce ourselves from the masses. And goes on later in the quote to say, and to identify our responsibility to the people with our responsibility to the leading organs of the party. And then also it says that not from one's self-interest or from interest of a small group. And I think that that's uh, kind of a key part that you were uh, touching on there is that uh, it's important to stay uh, to make sure that what you're perceiving as the the to serve the will of the people is also reflective of the will of the people and not reflective of your own self-interest or the interest of a small group of uh, organized people in perhaps some sort of leadership position and then mentions as you said that if they do find that there's a uh, disconnect there that they either step away from uh, the leadership position until they can uh, be in closer relation with the, the people or to then at least uh, to actively go and engage with the people and find out, confront that contradiction in, in ways that isn't, you know, uh, completely prescriptive to the people, but is reflective of listening to what it is, their concerns that are being raised and, and how those conflict with your position and, and engaging that in the same kind of Marxist Leninist or Frarian or what, uh, what have you kind of uh, way of approaching an issue and uh, a contradiction and pulling it apart and figuring out what it is that can be done about it. Uh, one of the other quotes that kind of was also just in there that stuck to me, though it seems somewhat out of uh, place was uh, says on the second half of 173 that all men must die, but death can vary in its significance. The, it talks about an ancient Chinese writer, but it says that uh, through death, though death befalls all men alike, it may be heavier than Mount Tai or lighter than a feather. And essentially to say that the significance of one's death can be, can be very significant or it can be completely insignificant and makes the uh, assertion that 
fighting for liberation uh, leads to a death that is heavy in significance, whereas a death in the interest of the oppressor is lighter than a feather. And uh, I think there's kind of an inspirational aspect to that, but then also I think there's a very kind of, uh, I don't know, a confrontation with uh, reality in a way that uh, if you do die for the oppressor, if you look at how, the the deaths of the oppre- people that die in the name of the oppressors there is an insignificance there and a very superficial kind of a, uh, a grandiosity in the little ways that we do if you think of kind of the laudatory celebration of the troops but then without providing things like basic uh, health care or mental health care when they get back or in so many on the streets and so on and so forth so uh, i think that to me and also suicide rate is off the charts as well among veterans so it's uh there's a it, when one dies in the name of the oppressor the it, i i see that lighter than a feather very much uh, and so like and in dying for liberation one figure that comes to my mind is uh fred hampton and somebody who is uh kind of constantly confronting the reality that he faced death and did it with a uh, conviction and a uh, a bravery that is inspiring to me and so uh i i see how in reality that in his death it has a much greater weight than the people that die in the name of the oppressor so it's like it's not only just kind of a uh, uh an idea but i also see how that manifested itself in reality so it matches the the reality that i see with my senses which is another theme i think that is covered throughout this piece Oh, yeah, definitely. The sensory aspects are, they come up a lot. There's a quotation um, that is on page, it's a little bit further down. Um, But again, this is something that's raised throughout the second half. Um, On page 209, he says, quote, whoever wants to know a thing has no way of doing so except by coming into contact with it. That is by living, practicing in its environment. If you want knowledge, you must take part in the practice of changing reality. And there's also, um, there are several quotes throughout this section that are about, you know, you have to have experience in order for you to understand things. Um, I think that there's, because on on one level, um, there are some tendencies that a lot of people have, unfortunately, including on the left, where if you just read about it, then you're all of a sudden a good Marxist. You know, like mm-hmm. if you've read this book, then therefore you know what you're talking about and you can, I don't know, go on and lead some sort of movement. Um, but in actuality, and this is again a very Freudian thing, and I know that you've mentioned you often use Marxist Leninism and Freud in the same sentence, but what's inter- what's fascinating is that Freud himself was not even that far left, like, you know, on the scale mm-hmm. of leftism. Um, and probably just someone like Mao. Mao would maybe consider him <laughs> <laughs> not as revolutionary. But I think that the, the the principle here, the thing that I come away with is just like, no matter your tendency, what we've been reading, almost everyone has said at some point in their writing that you have to put, you have to put your money where your mouth is, you know, and you have to be able to not just speak about something or read about something, but do something. You have to be able to practice what you read and practice what you preach. And I think that that's, again, something that is emphasized over and over and over through multiple quotations in this work, um, especially in the second half in terms of like just experiment, experiential understandings of things. Um, He even says here, for example, in the same quotation, um, 
that uh, all genuine knowledge originates in direct experience, like genuine knowledge. If you want, he says, if you want to know the theory and methods of revolution, you must take part in revolution. <laughs> all genuine knowledge originates in direct experience. And again, it seems kind of like, okay, a given, but I think there are a lot of people out there who, you know, want to talk about revolution, which is a good thing. I think we should be headed in that direction, especially at the rate things are going. Um, but we also have to understand that we we don't fully recognize that process until we're in it. Um, and and I appreciate that he's constantly saying like you can't again. It just goes back to this idea of not being top down, right? You have to be with the people. And if you're with the people, if you're fighting on their side, if you're literally fighting, then I think it shows you a different, you have, you have like more, um, more things at stake. It's very, it's more real to you. You know, I think if you're, if you're just looking at things from the sidelines or if you're just kind of, you know, protected and not necessarily coming to terms where they're facing the consequences, bearing the brunt, to be honest, of what's going on, then there may not be a way for you to fully grasp how to solve the problems um, that a society is facing. And so this is, again, why I think he emphasizes so frequently the need to have the poorest and most oppressed be the leaders because they have experience. They do know through personal, you know, personal and direct um, experience with these with these adversities, they have direct knowledge, which is what he keeps emphasizing, and that's what makes them better leaders in this case, and I think better able to articulate their needs. Um, so I I really appreciate that kind of that emphasis throughout the text. Um, the other thing that you had brought up that I was just thinking about as well throughout this this section is that he throughout the throughout the second half he talks a lot about what kind of leaders we want. And um, he mentions frequently that a leader and a movement also actually should be modest. And I think this once again goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of like, you know, people nowadays kind of having an over-elevated sense of um, ability or importance um, and the need for all of us to kind of step back and say, what are my contributions? What is the reach of my contribution? Which audience am I reaching and why? Um, what mistakes am I making? And to be able to to be able to be self-critical, um, to be able to reflect, to be able to change based on those reflections and feedback is all of that's really important because, you know, the ego, <laughs> as, as we well know from seeing certain movements fall apart, the ego is what kind of brings a lot of things down because it's just a reflection of kind of, it's a reflection once again of sort of capitalist liberalism, individualism that people like Mao and many leftist writers and thinkers are, are arguing against because it doesn't, it doesn't serve us to be solely focused, to be solely focused on the self. And so um, I think that this, this aspect is important on another note really quickly. It's also important that he, he the way he talks about, Marxist-Leninism as being almost like an experiment. I thought that was really cool as well because it, once again, it brings back like all this variant stuff, but it also, I think, just goes back into this holistic approach to the self and the movement um, because he mentions repeatedly that for a, a theory to work, not only should it be put into practice and experience, but it's something that can't just be like, seen through one side. You have to hear from all sides before you can assess something. You have to understand multiple sides before you can fully assess and address something. And then 
to, to understand that the way of seeing the world as a Marxist-Leninist comes through this sort of historical empirical approach, which I think is is very important for all of us to reflect on and, and think about, not just people who, you know, maybe identify as as such tend as such a tendency. Uh, I think that's all the really great points that you raise, and one of the I just wanted to go back a bit and touch on there's a kind of a longer quote i won't go into it but it reminded me of the kind of uh you know you a smart person me a dumb person meme on uh twitter but he talks about a, a story about the wise old man and the moving of mountains and i think one of the important aspects that we have the benefit of uh, you know being 40 years 50 60 years into the future is uh mal had a Wanted, was stressing the importance of generational change and that essentially that a lot, some of the people like a lot of the people that were working for the revolution while he was alive were not going to see many of the fruits that it would eventually bear and that that's an important aspect and another kind of uh, iteration of this is you know about a society is successful when you know the men plant trees that they'll never know the shade of and there's kind of various other iterations of the same kind of concept but uh i thought that was an important one that i saw on there that i think is important also to think about uh for any revolutionary movement is that there are tasks to be accomplished in the immediate uh, future and then there are tasks that are generational and that will require uh you know decades of time in order to accomplish and that uh, part of uh, understanding and, and making those uh, possible is uh, an installation of the value of generational change, uh, not just in the current generation, but in upcoming generations and not in a blind sense of following a previous generation, but in a Marxist-Leninist thought line of uh, critically analyzing their material conditions and uh, attacking them. So in the case of seeking liberation, uh, seeking liberation is, is a generational struggle and the uh, it's important to recognize kind of how that plays out. And I think we see that in the United States and uh, throughout several places, but uh, I think in China talking about kind of how, how poor and new the country was under uh, in some of this text is reflected then in the, the rapid growth that we saw from China in the uh, years that followed, uh, particularly in the most recent ones. Uh, one of the other things that kind of, uh, I picked up in there and touched on that was there's a talks about uh, on 207 quote in their social practice, men engage in various kinds of struggle and gain experience both from their successes and from their failures. And that countless phenomena of the objective external world are reflected in a man's brain through his five sense organs. And essentially that, you know, the, the way that we understand things is through our organs and then, we have kind of ideas in our head and it's matching those two up and finding contradictions. That is how we understand the world. And like it goes on and then there's more in there about cognition and how consciousness uh, is a part of that. And also a uh, quick, this reminds me of just in general, I wanted to mention that with Freire and Mao, it's like my, my personal interpretation off of just the texts that I've engaged with thus far is just that I lean more uh, Freirean in general uh, and Mao was a bit more kind of authoritarian than I'm comfortable with. But I also ref understand 
the that there are material conditions that were reflected at the time and context that uh, means that what Mao said may be absolutely true for Mao and not necessarily exactly apply to the situation that uh, that I'm in or that I'm perceiving that uh, we face. And so like, and that that's okay. And, and so like, that's one of the things that even Mao says in the text as well. And so like, uh, one of the quotes that kind of captured a bit of that was in 209 is like, if you want to change reality, you got to know the taste of a pear, you got to eat the pear, you know? And I think this is kind of uh, similar to what Wendy said. And then, uh, and also says later is if a man wants to succeed in his work, that is to achieve the anticipated results, he must bring his ideas into co correspondence with the laws of the ob objective external world. And if they don't correspond, he will fail in his practice. And after he fails, he draws his lessons, corrects his ideas, and makes them correspond to the external world, and thus can turn failure into success. This is what is meant by failure is the mother of success and a fall into the pit again into your in your wit. And essentially, I think that's an important aspect, too, is that uh, we have ideas and theories. And it's like, I think people come at this, come to these things in various ways. But I feel like for me personally, and I think what a lot of people have had, had happen in a variety of ways is they engaged in the material world uh, with the ideas that they had been instilled with uh, throughout their educational process. And uh, I think in 2016, especially, uh, a lot of people may saw a lot of contradictions with what they were taught that versus what they experienced. And so they had to take that failure and kind of internalize and understand what that meant. And some people didn't chose not to do that and instead externalized everything that happened as uh, not matching their ideas because there was something wrong with the reality rather than there was something wrong with their perception, the, the ideas that they had and their relationship with reality. And I think that's kind of a significant difference in the analysis of when one fails that Mao touches on in a lot of the text is, uh, is it, did reality fail to meet your expectations and that's a shortcoming of reality or did your uh, ideas and expectations not match the material facts of the world and do your ideas need to be adjusted in order to, to match those? And I think, well, there's some obvious uh, kind of ideas of changing the material facts. There's also a recognition that they, they are material facts and in order to change them, they have to be confronted uh, in the way that they exist. Uh, I'll pass it off for a moment and grab, grab a couple more quotes that I was thinking of. I think that that point um, sort of lends itself once again to that experiential emphasis and I think also your comments on generation are really important here because the dialogue between generations and between different groups helps us with that experiential process, at least lends itself to um, correcting mistakes, right? Um, and this is something that Angela Davis talked about in the work that we read of hers um, as well, because she mentions at the end of um you know, abolition democracy, where she talks about the need for the different generations to communicate because one set of people has already gone through something and could lend, you know, like learning from them could help um, newer generations facing similar yet slightly different struggles. But at the same time, there shouldn't be a sort of reliance upon or um, sort of seeding an entire movement to an older generation because of those differences that that have occurred in between 
that's you know like the older movements and newer movements but in between those generations there are things that have changed significantly as well that have to be acknowledged um but mal touches on this on page 239 he says quote worker and peasant comrades because of pride in their class origin may look down upon intellectuals while intellectuals because they have a certain amount of knowledge may look down upon worker and peasant comrades any specialized skill may be capitalized on and so may lead to arrogance and contempt of others even one's age may become ground for conceit. The young, because they are bright and capable, may look down upon the old. And the old, because they are rich in experience, may look up, down upon the young. All such things become encumbrances or baggage if there's no critical awareness. Um, and so, you know, that that quotation sort of stands out for its, you know, explains itself. It's self-explanatory. Um, but I do think it's something that we have to be careful about, especially when we're talking, again, I just keep thinking about electoral politics, Um but, you know, we have this dial, like, not dial, we have this, this saying sometimes where we're talking about boomers, or like older people, or whatever. And I think we have to be careful um, in our discussions of people with, you know, of older age, precisely because, you know, maybe they're making those decisions not out of a place of reluctance or, you know, like just resigning to the fact that, oh, well, this person's going to win and so we should vote for them. But it could be from the experience of struggle and recognizing that sometimes people who promise to do so many things have let them down. Um, and they they go with the person who's promising the least because they are expecting the least from these kinds of candidates. And I think sort of rethinking, reframing um, some of the decisions of the majority of older voters, for example, or older people in general, can help us better um, I don't know, like help us better influence them, engage with them to perhaps encourage them to vote better. I don't know. Um, but it, I think just dismissing people right off the bat and not recognizing where they're coming from, at least in these cases, sometimes can be a deterrent. Um, and there's there throughout the text, there's a lot about, you know, talking to people who are different from you, um, engaging with people who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and trying not to cut yourself off entirely um, from others. And he says, for example, that um, communists, this is on page 274, communists must listen attentively to the views of people outside the party and let them have their say. If what they say is right, we ought to welcome it and we should learn from their strong points. If it is wrong, we should let them finish what they're saying and then patiently explain things to them, which I thought was funny because it, <laughs> sounds, it sounds kind of dismissive. Like, let me tell you where you messed up, you know? Um, but at the same time, I think it does at least offer a kind of example of an approach that we can take when we find ourselves challenged by certain viewpoints. And I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not saying here like, oh, go be friends with Nazis. That's not the point. And I don't think that's the point that he's making. But I think the point here is that there are people who are on the right track, who are very close to getting it right, who can, can I think are infinitely close to what needs to be done. And there may just be a some some political you know, some political element or aspect of their background or whatever that's holding them back from seeing the full picture. And so I think it, it is a good, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a nice bit of advice <laughs> for things that we can do. <laughs> and I think especially at this time um, to engage with people who are in different generations, especially um, to, to kind of rethink and um, 
yeah, rethink some of their decision-making that may harm us um, and most likely will harm us. So I, yeah, I think it's, it, it offers some nice advice on that front. No, I thought I, I also picked up on that quote and uh, I noticed especially that it's important. It closes out with that essentially it must be engaged with critical awareness. And so young or older is like, it, it's exactly kind of how, as you described that we need to be critically aware of what, we're engaging with and you know identify what is it that that it, that we're actually confronting is it you know it, with uh, for instance various uh, approaches in electoralism is like what is actually leading that so that in order to uh, perhaps uh, change to to get on the same page that uh, we have to first make sure we understand why it is we're not on the same page. And so I think that's a, a very important point. And in that section from about 226 to 239, there were several things in that particular quote on 239. One of the things that picked up to me is uh, that, you know, these are kind of encumbrances and that we can't engage them un uh, uncritically. And also, especially, is that having made mistakes that you can feel like uh, you're saddled with them and can become dis disappointed and dispirited and that like you are, I guess it's, he just says that if you have not made mistakes, you feel that you're free from error and succumb to conceit. So essentially either you've made mistakes and you can let those kind of weigh down on you and prevent you from engaging in, and trying again, or you've avoided making mistakes and that leads to a conceit. And so whether you're, you find yourself, uh, you know, failing in these endeavors or you find yourself succeeding, there's a vulnerability there on either side. And that's important to be aware of. And then going back a bit to, uh, to 26, uh, Mel says it is not enough to set tasks. We must also solve the problem of the methods for carrying them out. If our task is to cross a river, we cannot cross it without a bridge or a boat. Unless the bridge or a boat problem is solved, it is idle to speak of crossing the river. Unless the problems of methods is solved, talk about the task is useless. And this kind of rung to me about also, you know, about engaging in the communities and uh, doing the work as opposed to just uh, studying the theory and kind of the what I thought of is, you know, is like, what are we going to do if we got to cross this river? Are we going to stand on the shoreline talking about how to build the perfect boat and what it'll be like on the other side of the river? Or do we have to build a boat or build a bridge? And uh, although we had some disagreements about what was the best approach, we have to try it. And if it fails, not look at that failure as, you know, insurmountable and conclusive evidence that we should not have tried in the first place. Uh, but that or that we should have spent more time uh, coming up with an idea, but that now we have a better uh, understanding of the material conditions in the world so that we can build a better bridge or boat so that we can get to the promised land on the other side of this river. And that kind of stunk, struck, uh, stuck out to me. And just uh, one of the other aspects uh, from the quote on 239 that it related to me is it reminded me of uh, the drum major sermon from MLK Jr., which also speaks to this kind of uh, the motive, the motivation and energy of youth and the experience of elders and the conflict between the two and how there has to be uh, both a recognition of the wisdom and 
among elders and then the um, recognition among elders about the energy and the youth and that we can help each other in realizing our liberation uh, rather than see each other as opposing forces. And uh, also as well as it really touches on the importance of kind of self-awareness and stepping away from uh, the, the kind of pomp and circumstance and glory that's attached to success and recognition and remembering the work is for the people and not for your own uh, self-aggrandizement. Now, I think for me, something I kept asking myself when I was reading it, because like you just mentioned, and as I and as I'd mentioned before, there's so much emphasis on dialogue, listening to others, engaging with others. Um, I kept asking myself, okay, besides obviously imperialists right who is like which group for mal represents the real enemy um and I, and you know on the one hand like you were just talking about with regard to pride and this this emphasis on self and i think like i had mentioned earlier as well about arrogance and the need to be modest on the one hand the the adversary in this text is the self um and it's it's a constant struggle throughout the text um for him as you see him kind of saying, okay, these are things about yourself that you have to fight back, right? That you have to fight against. These are learned tendencies that we all express and that we have to get over in order for us to have a successful revolution. Um, at the same time, I think the other enemy besides the very obvious one that comes out later on is liberalism. Um, and I found that section to be really powerful because it like it felt very current once again you know like very much related to what we're dealing with now um and i think his his criticism of, of liberalism um may ring true for a lot of people who are dealing with it right now and kind of looking at the political atmosphere and saying this middle of the road stuff is not working this middle of the road stuff is literally getting people killed um and we have to actually have struggle to to sort of overcome some of the problems that we're facing, because if we just kind of keep putting a Band-Aid on things or engaging in what he considers, you know, revisionist tactics, which he's also very critical of towards the end of the reading, um, I think that those those spell disaster for most of us and especially the most oppressed of us. Um, on page 247, 248, and around two, I think he starts at around 246, to be honest, he has this outline of like the different types of liberalism and the different types of liberal and what it, what it means to engage in this kind of like, you know, political impotency. Um, and he mentions, for example, on page 247, he says um, that, um, one of the examples of liberalism is to be indifferent to the needs of others um, and, quote, to show no concern for their well-being, forgetting that one is a communist or behaving as if one is an ordinary non-communist. Okay, but then he goes on to say, quote, to see someone harming the interests of the masses and yet not feel indignant or dissuade him or stop him or reason with him, but to allow him to continue in his harm, right? That's the eighth type. Uh, then he has a section right after that where he says to work half-heartedly without a def definitive or, or sorry, without a definite plan or direction to work perfunctorily and muddle along, quote, so long as one remains a monk, one goes along tolling the bell. This is the ninth type. And I think for me, <laughs> I definitely felt that. Um, he even says later on, like the next page, that, quote, liberalism is extremely harmful in revolutionary in a revolutionary collective. 
It is a corrosive which eats away unity, undermines cohesion, causes apathy, and creates dissension. It robs the revolutionary ranks of compact organization and strict discipline, prevents policies from being carried through, and alienates the party organizations from the masses which the party leads. It's an extremely bad tendency. And I was just like, if that doesn't describe the Democratic Party right now, I don't know what does. Like, I just, I felt like, because, you know, we're thinking about, okay, they're taking corporate funding, they're doing what they're, they're, you know, the people who are paying them want them to do, these corporations and things like that and, and PACs and whatnot. Um, anytime someone pops up in the party that's even slightly to the left of what's going on as the party moves continuously to the right, that person is is put down right away um, and, and stops from doing anything productive. Um, you know, they mount all sorts of challenges to that person. Uh, we see as well the apathy. I mean, that's the other part I think that that is just the most depressing and sad about it because, for example, yesterday people were posting tweets of, um, you know, the, the amount in terms of deductibles and monthly co-pays and whatnot, things that they would have to pay uh, for Obamacare, because they're the, the last day of registration was yesterday, I believe, last night or something. Um, and people were talking about having to pay upwards of, you know, $1,500 a month, and then plus having deductibles that were like $16,000, $18,000, which basically means you're going to be paying out of pocket until you die, pretty much, you know, and this is with government health care. And so the response to that by, by elected officials in many cases, and also even by citizens, which is the scariest part, has been, well, why don't you just get a get a better job? Get get a job and get job insurance. Or why don't you, you know, work a little harder? What's wrong with you? Do you want to pay higher taxes? I'm like, uh, the response, I think, to these sorts of concerns and issues is, is really frightening. And it shows the type of do-nothingness that he describes as being the one of the most dangerous elements of our societies. Um, and so I really, I don't know, that part, that part to me was very meaningful and applicable to what we're going through right now. I also think the other part of it that, that was really, that really resonated was just the simple fact that not only will these types of people um, be indifferent to the suffering of others, but they will actually contribute to the suffering of others with their indifference, right? The dangers of that indifference and the dangers of that um, inability to connect and and have have sympathy or empathy with others. Um, you know, it, it's something that that's very current and um, we're trying our best to, you know, to get people to see things beyond themselves. But at the same time, some people are just never going to see anything. Like as long as they're doing okay, they're not going to recognize where other people are hurting. And I think that this is why it becomes dangerous because the people that Mao is talking about discussing things with and changing and dialoguing with, they're those who at least have a slight sense of concern, who have a slight interest in change. The people that he's saying are basically the enemy to co the collective are the ones who don't, don't see any need to change and who don't have any sense of you know, shared interest or concern with, with their fellow man. So I really, I loved this part. Um, and as I said, it's around page 246, 247 and 248 um, that I, I thought was just a real standout for me. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, one of the key points that stuck out to me just in uh, looking back over that particular uh, quote is the talking about uh, combating liberalism uh, is from a 
uh, is, I guess the date on it is September 7th, 1937. And so this is uh, before uh, MLK and his, his kind of realization of the white moderate. And I guess what just kind of occurred to me was just like, perhaps had he been more, uh, had engaged more with Mao, the text Mao, he would have sooner realized the opposition that he later realized in the white moderate and as described here in liberalism. And one of the parts of the quote that kind of stuck out to me uh, that you pulled in that same section, uh, or where, where, where did it go here? Uh, I had highlighted it, but then I got distracted <laughs> and switched to another. But uh, essentially, just uh, the uh, kind of the liberalism attitude, and the it reminded me of the white moderate in MLK, and just the danger. And then uh, another quote that comes to my mind is Desmond Tutu and the uh, elephant and the mouse, and kind of uh, sort of indifference or you know neutrality in the face of oppression is essentially siding with the oppressor. And uh, it, it talk, he talked about also kind of the eating away at the unity as well. And I think that there's an aspect of that. And then I think one of the things uh, that here it is that stuck out to me is he talks about uh, people who are liberals. This is on page 249. People who are liberals look upon the principles of Marxism as abstract dogma. They approve of Marxism, but are not prepared to practice it or to practice it in full. They're not prepared to replace their liberalism by Marxism. And these people have their Marxism, but they have their liberalism as well. And they talk Marxism, but they practice liberalism. And I feel like this is something and people that engage with liberals in and discourse and discussion in general, I think, have probably heard multiple times. Well, I agree with you, but... Or, you know, the, uh, I agree with you, but the way you're telling talking about it is making uh, enemies out of allies. And, you know, and this is also harkens back to the rhetoric of the white moderate. And uh, it, it seems Mao also was confronting these issues as well. Essentially, people that agree with you, but I don't agree with your methods and I don't agree with the, the way and, and so on and so forth. And really are just kind of making an escape hatch built out of liberalism and so that they can avoid practicing the Marxism. Uh, by escaping into liberalism and essentially passing it off as uh, sensibility. And uh, I think uh, we see Mao here. And for me, uh, my experience and my studying MLK, it, it shows that that confronting that uh, I don't know, distortion is important. Uh, from some of the, one of the other things that kind of, uh, was an issue when we when I first started engaging with revolutionary texts and post 2016 in general was how do I identify the people that are that are my comrades in common cause and how do I identify the people that we're in opposition with it's like uh, when you mentioned you know the imperialists and that's obvious and there's some ideas of the self you know I was familiar with concepts like internalized racism so I knew that there were colonialist imperialist you know chauvinist ideas lurking around my brain that i was going to have to deal with uh throughout this process uh but i wanted to know you know it's like who who's who's convincible or how do i identify somebody that is worth uh engaging with and all those kinds of things so i think this text in general we've touched on some of the aspects but another one that stuck out to me was uh like he says on page 291 uh, how should we judge whether a youth is a revolutionary? How can we tell? There can be only one criterion, namely whether or not 
he's willing to integrate himself with the broad masses of workers and peasants and does so in practice. If he's willing to do so and actually does so, he is a revolutionary. Otherwise, he is a non-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary. If today he integrates himself with the masses of workers and peasants, today he's a revolutionary. If tomorrow he ceases, uh, he ceases to be a revolutionary and becomes a non-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary. And so that for one of the aspects that I pulled from that is that it's a fluid thing and that and it uses the time scale of days, but it, I'm sure it can just as easily be applied to particular issues. And so uh, somebody can have a revolutionary idea and mindset and uh, outlook and plan for a particular set of issues or whatever, but then also have non-revolutionary ideas. And in that instance, and in that moment, they're not acting as a revolutionary, but a non-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary. But uh, to use an expression, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and that it doesn't, that we also still can recognize their revolutionary aspects as well. And that to me, what I saw is that there's, uh, that those that, as Wendy points out, that are, that recognize the problem and are seeking solutions are the ones that we should spend our revolutionary energy on rather than the liberals who are in opposition and merely give a lip service to Marxism with essentially a uh, either an active or unintentional uh, idea of undermining Marxist principles and goals. And so, and instead replacing them with liberalism because that, both maintains their position in the hierarchy, but also eases their social conscience for when they see the suffering that the system perpetuates. Um, I wanted to just add quickly, this is my last quotation actually that I highlighted. Um, there's a section on women in here. And oh, glad we this, were going to get to that. <laughs> and it, the reason I mentioned it now is just because, you know, we were just talking about liberalism and like who the enemy is and things like that. Um, and I think, unfortunately, in some cases, what we see happening also with liberalism is a sort of tokenization of certain issues. Um, and and they may like highlight an issue and say, oh, this is necessary for women. So, for example, one of the things I see a lot is the relegation of all women's issues. like quote unquote, all women's issues, trademark, you know, um, to reproductive rights. And usually that by that, they just mean the right to have an abortion and the right to have an abortion during like first or second trimester. Um, so it's a very limited scope through which we see the focus of, of liberals. And I think even then they're not as solid on those things, right? So we, we've seen a, a sort of um, uh, a dissolving of pro-choice um, advocacy among Democrats, because now the tent is so big that it has come to encompass basically what we would consider Republicans, um, at least in the United States. Although I would argue as well in Europe, especially around issues of immigration rights, um, we've seen a lot of quote unquote liberals or centrists or even socialists in some cases, like in France, um, get into this very anti-immigrant, anti-migrant, xenophobic um, realm in which they initially like an area where they initially had not been quite so um, so negative and harsh or indifferent in some cases. And I think now we're starting to see a turn where, okay, the idea, the definition that we have of a liberal or of a centrist or even a socialist, a social democrat is eroding because it's those token issues have fallen apart. Because and I think this is this is something again that he kind of goes into, like when he talks about our the idea of Marxist Leninism being not just a part 
but a whole and then a whole analysis of all the parts. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to just one little thing here and there. These are these five issues we're going to call Marxist-Leninism and call it a day. Um, it's about an analysis of systems and the way they operate and the way the society operates and what best fits a society based on the needs of its its most oppressed. And that for me, I think, is where I get back to the women quotation. And I thought it was interesting that he has a line here. Um, I believe it's on page, let's see, yeah, 297. Um, he says, quote, in order to build a great socialist society, it is of the utmost importance to arouse the broad masses of women to join in productive activity. So he's talking about labor here mainly farm work. Men and women must receive equal pay for equal work in production. Genuine equality between the sexes can only be realized in the process of the socialist transformation of society as a whole. And this is really important because, again, with, I think, liberalism, there has been recently a, a renewed focus on this idea of equal pay for equal work and also um, around paid family leave, um, paid maternal leave, and an extension of maternal leave. So what we saw Donald Trump do the other day is Donald Trump actually extended um, the family leave um, for government workers, I believe, to a full month, if I'm not mistaken, um, which is like nuts to me that that wasn't already guaranteed. Like it just for fun, look up what the what the paid family leave or paid maternal leave is in your state. Like when you when you're done listening to this podcast, just out of just for for shits and giggles, go look it up. It's like shocking. In most states, there's a very, very short maternity leave and there's often no family leave. So if you adopt a child, if you're a father, if you're not the person carrying the baby, if you're the partner of the person who carries the baby, uh, you don't get any days off to be with your child um, and you're, you know, the person who just gave birth, like you're just kind of got to go back, back to work, you know? Um, and this sort of disregards things like having C-section, having birth complications, and again, as I said, adoption, um, and, and the needs of children at early stages. And so there's there's a lot to be said about that. But what's happening with liberalism and, and people even like Trump is that there's a tokenization of this one issue. And they say, okay, now that we've given you your, fam your paid family leave, shut the hell up, go sit down, you don't need anything else. There's no discussion about, for example, the need to supplement healthcare for children and, and families, um, the cost of insurance, the cost of healthcare in general in this country, um, the need to have job security, for example. So, okay, you might get your paid family leave, but then when you come back to work, you get fired. You know, this is something that has happened um, to women on many case, in many cases. So I think that it's important for us to have a whole systemic or yeah, systemic sort of view of what's happening. And I think that that is what he argues for at the end of the quotation that I just read, because for us to have actual equality, it can't just be you implement this one thing. It has to be a complete transformation of our society um, and the way we work, the way we operate for that equality to really mean anything, for equal pay to really mean anything. Because we might make the same amount of money, but if we don't have the same degree of rights, then it's irrelevant. And that goes not just for women, but with everyone. Um, we can apply this to people of different racial backgrounds, people of different sexualities, people of different um, you know, citizenship statuses, et cetera. There's a lot of, you can spread this out to be anything or to apply to anything where it's, it can't just be one or two initiatives that help these groups or the or, or us in general um, on this one particular issue, but it has to be something that that incorporates the entire person and the entire society. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was like a, for me at least, 
a nice way to sort of encapsulate so much of what he had already talked about. And I also think it raises questions for us to remember going forward when we're thinking about leftist movements in general. Like, it cannot be, you know, um, we deal with these issues and then we get to your stuff last or we get to your stuff when we have time. You know, I've had people say to me, people who have very prominent roles in a campaign right now, um, I've had someone say to me, well, you know, what we can do is we we focus on these universal programs and then we'll help we'll help people of color on under the table because we don't want to alienate the white racists who might vote for this candidate. This is something that was literally said to me by a person who's now on a, a campaign um, for president. And I think that that kind of mentality neglects and goes against what Mao is saying we have to do. It can't just be we're going to help you with this one thing and or hope that you get helped by this one policy and good luck with the rest. It has to be a holistic view of a society um, and a holistic view, I would argue, to extend upon that, um, a holistic view of policy. And if we want policies to work, they have to be um, they have to include an understanding of the needs that people have beyond just the policy. Like, how is the policy going to be implemented? How do we make sure that there's a fail safe in there for people who are in societies that are rural or societies that are, you know, like, I don't know, cut off from certain health services or that have extreme degrees of wealth disparity broken down on the basis of race or gender, fill in the blank. But there have to be, there always should be, I think, um, these measures in the background that people are thinking about that they can then incorporate into a policy or even a worldview <laughs> that make sure that that nobody's left behind in this process because I don't think it is socialism or you know fill in the blank left um, political view. It's not that in full if we're leaving people behind and then saying good luck to them. Hopefully we'll get to them at some point or you need to be quiet right now because we're focusing on ourselves and then maybe we'll get to you if we have some time. That kind of mentality is not socialist, like point blank. It's not. Um, and we've read multiple socialist leaders work and, and learned about their lives where they've not said ever, we're going to do this first and then good luck to the rest of you. It's always about pulling everyone up and helping everyone. And you want to have the most, the grand majority of the society um, covered, you know, by certain things and not, you know, the, the goal has never started at we're going to leave people behind. And I think starting at a place like that is self-defeating and ultimately it's liberalism and we have to avoid that. And I think that there's like, I think you raised some excellent points and I think that there's some gray areas, both on the kind of uh, liberalism side. And I think uh, earlier in the text and some of our previous texts have kind of touched on this in that if it's in the interest, if it, advances the interest of liberation, then it can be considered revolutionary. But if it acts to uh, deflate the revolutionary spirit, as Mao says in this, this sections that we were talking about here, then it, it's not an interest. And it's sometimes hard to identify those. And I think sometimes only in practice do we make recognition of whether it's uh, which one it is. And so uh, I think there's, for me, there's some hesitance you know, uh, like I know one that I've uh, know you've kind of confronted yourself or uh, kind of investigated is with uh, progressive prosecutors. And what does that mean? Is that in the interest of liberation or does it serve to reinforce uh, the, the systems? And I think that there's kind of lots of issues that come up that 
are in those areas and the only way to really engage with or to to know is to both one see them in practice and then two actually engage with them critically rather than you know simply accept victories on their face for victories or to you know disregard them as not successful without uh, an actual investigation and engagement with what they're offering uh i i think it's uh, both fitting and kind of uh accurate in are reflective of the text that the section on women came last because as people have probably noticed uh most of the text is gendered directed towards men but at the same time uh in this section uh, about women we see that mao going as far back as 1927 was uh addressing inequity and uh Uh, patriarchal ideologies and systems within society and how that had to be confronted and essentially offered the idea that they can only be resolved through socialist Marxist Leninist uh, progress, essentially that otherwise we get the kind of shallow representative or, you know, uh, superficial gains that I think Wendy was also touching on. And I think that was kind of an important, aspect that i pulled out of the section there uh, a quote particular on 295 had a lot in there about it and uh one of the other things that stuck out to me it actually came earlier but uh, i think this might be a uh a fitting time to address it is that uh there also as far as the equal pay equal work thing that just for some context that was just introduced in the united states around 1944 and then as many people are aware didn't actually get success into legislation until uh, late in the 60s early 70s when we started to see that legislation but as people are also probably familiar we haven't seen pay equity yet still uh 60 70 years on from its initial uh, kind of presentation as something that needed to be dealt with so i think that also speaks to uh the the friction for which transformative change meets within a liberal system and how acquiescence to that liberal system can impede progress for generations and that so it's important i guess from in my perspective is that when uh looking at both generational change and then also looking at the uh the weaknesses of electoralism or uh, various other aspects that are, I think some people see them as uh, realizations of the material facts that have to be confronted and others see them as a kind of a concession towards the system. And I think it's important that both groups uh, engage critically and dialectically in kind of understanding what that is because i'm sure that some people are wrong on both sides about a a variety of issues and the only way that we're going to uh, identify which is which is by the people uh both people that are practicing engaging with theory and the people that are uh more focused on theory uh connecting with those that are more engaged in practice and not in a kind of the atmosphere that twitter or various other social platforms uh promote of a of a conflict like a kind of confrontation conflict but as in a trying to better understand the situation and how to resolve it uh kind of way which is uh i think also lends to wendy's which you started talking about at the top of the show which is the kind of interaction that was forced by a lack of internet and the you there was a a bit of 
a, a requirement of engaging with the people if you even just wanted to have your ideas leave your own head. Whereas uh, today you can have an idea touch thousands of other minds, millions of minds without leaving your bedroom. And so like, while that has some profound, powerful impacts and that it can spread ideas, uh, it doesn't address what's critical in I think the text that we see from Al, which is a practicing of those ideas and then relating those practices to the ideas and the material conditions with which they were confronted and improving or uh, uh, revisiting the idea to better reflect the material conditions that it has to confront. Yeah, I, I, it reminds me again, too, of um, this issue of like, what do they say, like armchair activism, right? So mm -hmm. you feel like you've done something by commenting on something on Twitter or Facebook somewhere in social media, but what is the kind of larger social impact of that? Does it get beyond that? And I think about this a lot, actually, because I'm like, I spend time tweeting about things that I find of social importance, right? Like, oh, this coup happened or this this policy was wrong or whatever. But then you know, I come away from that feeling like, okay, I said something about that. Check, you know, like check mark. Right? Mm -hmm. But then how do you apply that in real life beyond just the diet, just beyond just the discussion aspect of it? Right. We have, you know, d discussions all the time, debates even online that I think are substantive, but at the same time, how do we translate that into our own lives? And I think it gives us the false sense that we've done that already. Um, and I think that that can also be, it can be as seductive as it is dangerous, especially when it comes to stuff like, again, healthcare, like, okay, when are we going to, when are we going to like actually make something happen here? Right. Because we can complain about it. And I think rightfully so, but then how do we make sure that people who are upset about what's happening with the healthcare, then go vote for someone who's, willing to change it, who wants to change it, um, who, how do we get to people to make sure that they then put pressure on their elected officials? How do we make sure that people also do things beyond the state? I mean, I say this all the time. I said this when Trump was elected, but I was like, we have to be better about doing stuff off the grid to survive. Um, and I mean that like when it comes, if you have a medical degree, if you have a law degree, put your, put your services to work in your community off the record. You know what I'm saying? Like if you have access to medication, if you have access, you're, you're knowledgeable of certain treatments. If you know that your neighbors are starving or suffering in some way, like if you have friends or relatives or, um, you know, again, neighbors, people in your community who are undocumented immigrants, you have to do something within your capacity to help those people. And I think that there's sometimes, you know, again, it, it, saying something online can give us a false sense of our having done something. But sometimes I think we also disregard or like undermine, not undermine, but like overlook the skills that we all happen to have and that we can put into practice that maybe don't have anything to do with voting, but that have to do with immediate assistance that we can give people. Um, an example I always give too is like, for example, I go to other countries a lot, either for research or because my husband is from another country. And so when we go visit his family, I buy a shit ton of inhalers. And some of you who follow me online, you've seen me comment, like if anyone needs, you know, if any asthmatics out there need an inhaler, send me a DM and I will give you inhalers. Like I literally mail inhalers to people, okay? So these sorts of things, these sorts of small acts can be really helpful if you're looking at 
you know, um, not having healthcare for a year. And as someone, I, I have asthma and like, you know, we spend $3 on an inhaler in Turkey that costs hundreds of dollars here if you don't have insurance. And it's just insane because it's a difference between life and death. So I think sometimes, you know, we have to be able to kind of, we should, we should all assess what skills we have, what access we have, and what we can do even on a small scale that may actually impact people in a very important way. Um, and I think that lends itself further into this, this idea that Mao talks about quite a bit, which is constantly being self-reflective, constantly having a self-assessment and understanding what people need and being responsive to those needs within your capacity. Um, and, I, and I think we all can do that. I think sometimes the other problem with social media and the internet and just the you know, the prevalence of this kind of mass communication is that it makes us feel like what we're doing is always like never enough. But I think if we were able to add up all these small acts, we would recognize that it is a lot. Um, and we just have to make sure that we're not just talking. Like we have to, we have to talk, we have mm-hmm. to listen, but we also need to act um, and to act in on the basis of people's needs. So I don't know. That's, that's something that I definitely I mean, agree with Mao on. Um, I'm curious also if you had other quotations you wanted to go over. And then the other thing I wanted to know is just like what your final thoughts were on the text. Obviously, we're going to have a second, a third, excuse me, third episode to go over historical context and the impact of the book on other people. But I'm just curious about your own reflections, kind of, you know, what the impact of the book was on you, because for both of us, it was the first time we'd ever read it. So I'm curious to, to see not only if you had other comments and quotes, but also what your thoughts were on the whole book. Yeah, uh, the last quote that I had was uh, from page 305 and goes on to 306. It says, uh, quote, now there are two different attitudes towards learning from others. One is the dogmatic attitude of transplanting everything, whether or not it is suited to our conditions. This is no good. The other attitude is to use our heads and learn those things which suit our conditions. That is to absorb whatever experience is useful to us. That is the attitude we should adopt. And for me, that kind of speaks to this text in an overarching theme that I picked up through all our, out our, all, all our texts is that uh, the point of Marxist-Leninist thought or Mao or uh, Black Panthers or any of the inspirational uh, or Frary or any of uh, any of these people is not to dogmatically apply their quotations in theory to uh, the situation that we face, but to engage with it and to find uh, how it's applicable to the world material conditions that we face. Because oftentimes we're separated either by decades and sometimes centuries from the people that are putting these ideas. And in that time, there's been progress, there's been setbacks, there's been uh, challenges and there's been you know those challenges have been overcome and all of that is things that we can benefit from understanding and and engaging with and uh i think it's important that we keep that in mind so uh i think some people start reading some theory and then they're inclined to you know it's like oh well that doesn't match this and it's like well that's that's useful information but that in itself in and of itself doesn't invalidate a point or an argument it takes deeper analysis, deeper engagement, and deeper confrontation of the contradictions to investigate whether the what we're seeing is reflective of a uh, interpret interpretive issue or if it's a a deeper kind of uh, 
problematic uh, issue that we're addressing uh, on a deeper level. And that's just an important aspect to keep in mind. One of the, like the, my reflections from the text in general was that, again, I mentioned this earlier, but just that I, I'm upset, I guess, that I wasn't exposed to this earlier, that I didn't, hadn't, didn't, wasn't, this wasn't presented to me as something worth of engagement prior was just very upsetting. And it, again, speaks to, I think, a larger pervasive issue of education. Uh, I think that there was some valuable information regarding uh, kind of the, I guess, dealing with a an active imperialist uh, opposition and what that meant to uh, the practices within this. Uh, I think in the context part, we'll talk about kind of how this started as a text for uh, within the military. And I think that you can see little bits of reflection in there. Uh, I know there's one part that talks about preferential treatment for the families of the military, which just kind of stuck out as a red flag to me as like just the concept of preferential treatment. I just, it, it seemed somewhat in conflict with the preceding quote about how the army is of the people and the people of the army. And that essentially, I don't think we need any sort of preferential treatment, but I imagine that's something that was reflective of the material conditions with which the context of the text is in. And that's goes back to how I started this, which is that it's not to rigidly and dogmatically apply these ideas uh, today, but to use them to inform us moving forward. And I think that's one of the most important parts. And uh, taking action is another important part that is in this and as well as all our other texts. And that's something that I'm, I'm looking to do. And I think it's important also to, to accept the little things. And so one of the ways that I'm doing that rather than embark on some of the larger projects that have been kicking around my brain for some time now, but I've been sitting on the shore building a perfect boat rather than trying to sail across uh, to borrow an analogy that I used earlier. But essentially is uh, one thing that I've actually managed to start doing is uh, I do occasionally go outside uh, for reasons that I can't control. <laughs> and so when I do that, uh, I tend to engage with service workers at a variety of different places, you know, gas station workers or uh, whatever, maybe. And one of the things that I found that people kind of ubiquitously relate with is like either a direct boss or just kind of the system at their workplace, not being reflective of dealing with the challenges that they face and just kind of engaging around that to deal with what for me is usually uncomfortable small talk. But I found that, uh, applying both theory and bringing it into practice gives me a sense of accomplishment, but then also it helps me kind of uh, overcome some of the social awkwardness that I deal with with dealing with people in person in general. And so uh, that's something that I've gained from both this text and then previous text and that I've been trying to apply moving forward. And I think that that's something that, uh, to your point also, that we can all kind of do. And that's just one of the ways that I found that uh, I've been able to integrate it into my life without radically changing everything right away, but just uh, making small incremental steps towards the the kind of uh, action that I know I need to take in order to be following the the theory that I've definitely found myself relating with. I think for me, what stood out um, about the book as a whole is how accessible it was. Um, and 
I think like <laughs> what's funny is with time, I feel like our readings have become more and more accessible instead of less accessible um, in terms of like, you can just pick it up and read it. You don't have to necessarily have some like deep background knowledge of what happened in China at the time he was writing these uh, speeches. You don't necessarily, I mean, you should, it helps obviously kind of put things in perspective, but. Quickly, also- I just wanted to say that this definitely piqued my interest and I plan on learning more about the China throughout this historical period because it's also been deprived of me. And I just know that there's very valuable information in there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, again, me too, like, because it's not an area that I have very much knowledge of um, other than the basics and like just reading this book and then preparing to do introductions and learning more about Mao's upbringing and like the sort of um, socio-historical backdrop of what he was writing and, and struggling against um, especially in his younger years, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and again, you know, as you said, something that was deprived of you in the educational system, um, and something that I can say definitely was the case for me as well. Um, I found that it. What I liked about it is, and I think this is why it became so popular, why it was translated into so many languages and made so widely available, was the simple fact that you can just pick it up. And you can flip to a page, you can read a quotation and feel something about it. You know, like, it's almost like it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you remember these books, but like Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's like sort of semi-Christian, like inspirational short stories. Um, and and you could just pick it up and flip to any page and read it. And like something about it might apply to your life or a personal experience or whatever. This is, of course, kind of like the... This the chicken soup for the soul was like I said a sort of new age Christian self help version of this, but it was it very much felt to me like a chicken soup for the soul, but for like communists. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So you pick it up and you're like, wow, that's that's a good point. You know, like oh, I should do this. It makes you kind of reflect on things. There's a way to connect with almost every quotation, like even stuff that he was talking about with regards to the military or like stuff that seemed very rooted in Chinese history. There was still something in it that I could be like, yeah, that's a good point. Or like, I can relate to that, you know? And I think that that was one of the other things that make the made the book at the time it was published and then circulated widely so popular. What's interesting too is like, you know, this is discussed at the beginning of the book in the intro, but like the point when the party uh, published this was the ultimate goal was to have everyone read it and to have everyone read it multiple times. So not just, Oh, you look at it and you put it down, but it's something that you kind of use as a guidebook um, for your reflections on your life as someone who's striving to be a better communist. And so I thought that that was kind of cool and it would be, it, it sort of, it reminds me of those people who like walk around with the constitution. They have like a mini miniature copy of the yeah. constitution, but like, again, a more revolutionary version of that, you know, cause obviously our constitution has multiple problems um, and is not really all that revolutionary or nor was it written under such actual revolutionary circumstances. Um, but I, I don't know. I thought, I thought that that, I, mean, I guess as you say, I, I liked that about the book. Um, and it's something that I definitely would be interested in going back and reading at some point, or at least flip, you know, maybe one day flipping to a page and, and thinking about reflecting on certain things in it. Um, and I really look forward to our discussion of the context, the socio-historical context, um, because I, it's definitely seems to me that this is what other people who were reading it were doing, um, and how they saw it and why they were, <clears throat> excuse me, so impacted by it, uh, why it became 
so important for them to read and, and discuss with others. It also makes me think a little bit about, uh, again, Freire, like <laughs> how many times have we said this man's name <laughs> during this, this, these two episodes, but um, it makes me think about the, the intro to Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's one of the like several introductions, uh, forwards to the book where um, I believe it was the, the professor who mentions that, uh, you know, there were, there were, young people in parts of decolonizing Africa that were making copies of Freire's book and reading it and circulating it amongst themselves. And you see the same thing with a lot of the work that Fanon wrote. You know, people were reading his stuff off kind of like under the table, like illegally in some cases, because obviously Fanon is not only a revolutionary in the sort of psychological sense, um, of his research, but also revolutionary politically. Um, and so I think it's, it's just cool to kind of be able to feel that and relive that in some ways ourselves, you know, in the present. And I always wonder like, what's going to be sort of like what I hinted at in the first, the first episode of this series, but what's going to be the kind of little red book of our generation or what's going to, what's, what's the text that like, people are circulating now, if anything. I mean, is is there something that's comparable to this um, among people on the left that's from our time period? Because the thing that we have to remember is that a lot of these things were written and circulated within, you know, 10, 20 years of publication. So it's not as though they waited 40 years, 50, 60, 100 years later. Like we're reading this 50 plus years after the fact, right? Like a lot of the speeches in the, in the text are from the 1930s and forties even. So technically more than 50 years. Um, so part of me wonders like, what would be the equivalent of our generation to like millennials and younger? What, what are they circulating? What's being written or maybe a film or something that we circulate and talk about anymore? Is there anything like that? Is there going to be something that our children maybe look back and say, wow, like that must have been a really cool time. You guys are like sitting around having discussions about all this really deep stuff. And I don't know, I don't necessarily know what that is, but I think that's why reading this book was like kind of, it was very inspirational for me to think about like, what is, what does that look like in the present? Yeah, just a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to touch on before we go is uh, for the thing like that, that comes to my mind, the closest analog i can come up with would be the the new jim crow yeah. i feel like that's kind of sort of had that although i i have to admit myself i haven't read it that text in full read myself. it read yeah, it it's so it, good <laughs> i I've, I've heard it referenced and 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 seen many selections uh, and i've also seen the parallels from the selections to the text that we've written in so or that we've read read as well so like i i can tell it's something that i i need to engage with but i'll i think one of the reasons why it doesn't kind of fit the the mold of the little red book is because it's not quite as accessible formatting and presentation wise right uh, I, I feel like both the because of the modern conditions and facts that we face i feel you mentioned is there a movie or a media th i feel like that would be what would kind of capture a zeitgeist of sorts uh, and be able to uh, be distributed but i do think that having a text companion is important as well and to tease a bit about uh, the third part uh, i was really captivated by the impact uh, as it was documented in the uh, this kind of companion piece uh, 
of Mao and the Black Panthers. And one of the things that I discovered in that was there was a thing that was basically called the Little Black Book, which was a bunch of it was about 30 or 40 pages worth of quotes from various kind of black revolutionary figures and some other figures as well. And it kind of had that, but it's also been somewhat lost to history. And I'm sure also possibly and probably purposely destroyed out of many records as well. But that something like that is something that we could definitely use. And so uh, on to add to the list of uh, bold ideas kicking around my brain that I'm sitting on the shore considering is, you know, that's something that I would love to see uh, happen. And I would, I definitely at least intend to put the skills and efforts that I have available towards something like that, because I would, I would love to have a little pocket constitution type book that is uh, emblematic of a communist future rather than uh, an imperialist past. Yeah, that would definitely be a nice alternative um, <laughs> by comparison. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, like the closest we get also, I guess, is even just thinking about tweets that go massively viral, like mm. uh, to some degree, depending, of course, on what is being said in the tweet. Um, but I think even now, like there are some tweets that have been circulating for like almost a decade still um, that you can see here and there and say, oh, you know, like I remember when that was that was written or whatever and important. Um, but I, I, I think the other challenge we faced is like, again, what I hinted at the beginning, but um, the, the sort of ephemeral, ephemeral nature, excuse me, ephemeral, oh my God, what is wrong with me? Ephemeral nature of um, the internet. And, and I worry, it's something that I think about a lot as someone who's studying history, but like a lot of the archives that I'm dealing with are paper, right? It's literal printed typed out or written paper, uh, a record, a file of some sort that ends up being stored in a box somewhere and then ends up being digitized at some point or whatever. Um, but if everything's already digital, the question is how do we make sure that we can recover it in the future? Because it's also so so easy to delete. I mean, the closest we have is the Wayback Machine, but the Wayback Machine doesn't capture everything. I mean, you cannot go on the Wayback Machine, for example, and get a tweet from yesterday most of the time usually it's only select dates it's sort of random i'm not sure how they how they determine which dates they're gonna photograph and save or not um but that's something that's kind of always been a concern in the back of my mind that's a little bit scary like there are certain things that are happening now on the internet that are very important um and that can spark movements and yet we may not have accurate records of what those things were, you know, 10, 20 years from now. That's the question that's always in the back of my mind. That and is so a fascinating I, point. Sorry, I just quickly, I just, that not just uh, the contemporary or deletion of, uh, you know, opposition or whatever, but that like 10, 20 years from now, uh, records of opposition that existed back then can be scrubbed and there may not be an easy way to re to gain access to them. And that is something that is concerning. And I think something that paper addresses. And so sorry for the interruption, but I just, no, that no. really, really like resonated with me. So I, I wanted to speak to it. Yeah. I mean, and it's true. Like obviously paper also is, has a, <laughs> a lifespan, right. Um, mm -hmm. and that's why so many archives and libraries are are trying to digitize things, but even then, you know, like I, I know just from my personal experience, uh, when I was doing archival work in like pol secret police records in Brazil, um, that <laughs> ironically, like after I had done years and years and years of work in them, they finally like digitized everything. 
um, made it like, I mean, at the time I was doing the initial research, you could search by keyword, um, but then they ended up digitizing it and like making it even easier to search. But then uh, when they did that, I would go through certain files of people whose records I know I had looked at in the past and that I had like printouts of, and it was incomplete. And that always scared me because I said, oh crap, like that means that in the process of digitizing, they left something out they missed something, something may have been corrupted or whatever and didn't make it into the record. And then when those things, those, the paper files disintegrate um, or disappear or get burned, you know, there was there was like a massive fire at the Natural History Museum and the equivalent of the Natural History Museum in Rio, for example, that like whole language, records of whole languages were lost, right? And so that sort of thing is really scary. Um, but it also, it's not just in that case, it's not just the digital, but it's also the physical that can get destroyed. Um, but I think with digital in particular, it's very, it's much easier of a process, I think, to, as you said, sort of scrub the record. Um, and I raise this just because I think the fleeting nature of this medium also is what makes it challenging to have a little red book for our time period, right? Because every, there's so much information, there's so much text, there's so much audio, video, media in general circulating that sometimes that flood of media also drowns out what could be impactful information. Um, and at the same time, the, not only because of the degree of information we have access to now, <clears throat> but the means by which we have that access, the speed by which we have that access becomes our own enemy in some ways um, because nothing just sits with you. Whereas in, in back in the day, you like didn't have so many, um, you had life distractions, but you didn't have so many distractions when you just open up your computer. Um, and so something like a little red book was innovative and different and, you know, like something people would sit around and talk about. And I, and I don't know, you know, I know people are doing reading groups and stuff like that, but I think that's a very small set of people, um, a small group of people who have the time and the, the, the energy and the time to like sit down and actually read a book and then go and discuss a book <laughs> like that, 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 that I think accounts for a very limited number of people in our society at present. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. I, I think, I think reviving this practice would be good, but I also think, you know, like what, like, for example, the, the suggestion that you made that something you wanted to do in the future was to sort of apply these ideas to maybe making a, a new day version of this. But I also wonder about, you know, how do we um, not only kind of redo or reinvent something that already exists, but how can we use the forms of media that we have now and do something that catches and holds the attention of people now with the technology we have now and that it can be circulated and, and discussed in the same way um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's something I think that I'll just leave with for readers and listeners to think about. Um, but, you know, like, how do we, maybe that's a question to close with, like, how do we continue this kind of legacy of important texts or ideas to circulate when we have a present that often discourages the permanence of ideas and that pushes this idea of an overabundance of thought and ideas and, and information? Um, how do we kind of put a root into that, like ground that somewhere. Um, and that maybe is a is something that we can also discuss later at some point, like as a, just a, a, a general idea kind of episode, but like, how do, how do we have a foothold, you know, in this moment, um, historically? 
I think I that's know. an excellent question. I think uh, that, like I think this what we're doing with this was kind of our first engagement with that, and uh, I feel like this is sort of our you know building something to cross the river and seeing how <laughs> it works, and you know as like and learning from that experience so that our our next one is even better and more effective and more likely to lead us to where we're going. And I think that that's really. Uh, the way what she said to me uh, had a profound kind of impact just in that moment. And so I think it's a very, a very important question for us to ask and something that we can uh, think about moving forward uh, individually and then collectively. Uh, and I think uh, finding an answer to that will be beneficial to all of us. And one of the things on your other point that just kind of I've heard reflected in other venues is uh, kind of how television in general used to be where there was a program that everybody was going to watch and everybody watched it at the same time. And mm -hmm. then they would discuss about it. And it's like, now we're all siloed off and some people are watching it live. Some people are watching it live on the East coast. Some people are watching it on the West coast. Some people are watching and like there's spoilers going on on Twitter. And there's a feud there. That, that's just like a, a little thing. And then it's just like, there's, also you know people will binge watch and watch a whole series and they're and then versus the people that it's like so we don't we see that the same kind of patterns reflected not just in the uh i guess liberation space but also just in our everyday kind of entertainment and media space and so it's a it's not an issue unique to us and so i think in the ways that sometimes we can look to other solutions and find wisdom as well, even if they're in the interest of furthering counter-revolutionary ideas. And so uh, finding ways to find media that we can unite around and has a permanence uh, to your points, I think is an excellent, excellent endeavor and investigation worth uh, diving deeper into. Well, as always, Richard, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I look forward to our, our third installment of the Little Red Book discussion. So again, thanks. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Don't forget, of course, to find us on Patreon, where you can get all of our materials for free. And that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, as well as to follow us on iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To leave us a rating and review on iTunes, and to check us out on social media at, uh, of course, Left PRC. Also, don't forget, um, if you ever have any questions, comments, things you'd like to ask us uh, that you want us to read during the podcast or during some of our discussions, please feel free to drop us a line. Uh, we get really nice comments from everyone that we really, really appreciate. It's always so nice to read what you all are thinking about the show and your thoughts about you know, some of the things that, that we're reading or um, some of the interviews that we've had. But we'd also love to just hear your questions as well, if you happen to have any about some of the materials that we're going over um, or even some of our guests. So once again, feel free to interact with us as well. Send your questions, comments, et cetera, et cetera, via social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, and Patreon by always just finding the at left POC. Thanks so much, everyone, and have a good one.